Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind as we start a brand new week here at GPB. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I want to make a couple quick announcements before we turn to the panel. Uh, Number one, I want to remind everybody that on Monday night, June 3rd, we are going to be in Cartersville recording Political Rewind in front of a live audience. Uh, We'll be at the um, we'll be there at seven o'clock. We'll be at the Tom Faust, remind me of the name of the theater. I'm blocking it. The the Grand Theater, right in downtown Cartersville. And one of the things I want to say about it, if you're up in that North Georgia area and can get to Cartersville, you really ought to come out to see the show because we're going to turn a lot of it over to you. We want to know, we're going to make it a town meeting style show. We want to hear what you think about the legislation passed this session, including that controversial uh, abortion, anti-abortion law. Uh, we're going to talk about um, uh, a variety of issues on the state level. We also want to hear what you're thinking about Donald Trump these days, what you think about the Democratic candidates who are running for president. So it'll be an opportunity for you to get involved in the show. And I'd love to see as many of you as possible. Just go to the Political Rewind uh, website, uh, politicalrewind.org, and uh, follow the link to uh, a page that'll give you an opportunity to register for your free ticket Monday, June 3rd at 7 p.m. So please come out and uh, see us up there. We'd like that a lot. Uh, Jim Galloway continues on vacation. He's going to be gone all this week. Uh, I'm going to try to man the fort without him. I know it's going to be tough, but I'll do my best. Fortunately, I have a great panel here today uh, with a lot to talk about. Um, State Senator Elena Parent is here, a Democratic senator. How how many terms have you served now, Elena? I'm in my third term in the Senate. Third term in the Senate. Wow, wow, that's pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And we haven't seen you since the session, but you look like you've survived. I held on, barely. (laughs) If you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to GPB News' Facebook page, uh, right across from Elena Parent, is Julianne Thompson. She is active in Republican Party politics in Georgia, has been for a long time, has held various leadership posts in the party. And you're just back from Savannah, from the state Republican convention. So we're going to want to talk to you in the next few minutes about what went on down there. It's been an exciting few days and a a lot of changes within the party, so I'm excited to talk about it. Brand new party chairman, David Schaefer, a closely fought election. We'll get into all of that in just a couple minutes. Next to Julianne, our friend Dr. Andra Gillespie, who is a political science professor at Emory University. Um, Summer break, but not so much for you, Andra. We have lots of work to do in summer. (laughs) Uh, We always want to be able to plug your newest book. It is, again, called... Race in the Obama Administration. We did an entire show on it, and the data that, that Andra has mined to help us understand how Barack Obama's Uh, time in office uh, made an impact or didn't on African-Americans in this country, how African-Americans felt about Barack Obama. It's it's a fascinating read. So um, I suggest that you might want to go out and look for it if you can. Uh, And Heath Garrett is with us, a Republican strategist, picking up candidates left and right, I imagine, for the 2020 cycle. You're going to be pretty active. Alabama is a big uh, state for you, right? Uh, That's right. Our firm's all over the country uh, in lots of states, uh, but I focus a lot on the southeast, and Georgia and Alabama are kind of home, so love working for the good folks that get elected there. So we know you have a candidate in the uh, 6th District Congressional race, Brandon Beach, right? That's correct. Uh, Do you have any other Henry. Georgia candidates at this point that uh, we should know about? Working on some local uh, offices you know, that I care about here and uh, actually working more around the country right now and looking at, uh, obviously, some stuff that's going on in Alabama. They're going to have an active Senate race over there, obviously, and a number of congressional races, most likely because of the Senate race. Yeah. 
Um, you know, we're going to have to get into that at some point. There are a lot of people who think Alabama's new abortion uh, law, the, the law that virtually outlaws abortion, is the one hope Doug Jones may have as a Democrat of winning re-election in that state. It's absolutely, you know, I represent the attorney general for Alabama, so I've been, it's been a lot of time with him in the last couple of weeks talking about that law and its differences and the political and policy and legal difficulties. All right, let's park that for right now, because we have some news that we want to digest from over the weekend. Let, let me so you weren't down there in Savannah, I assume, were you? Unfortunately, I was not. Okay. Uh, Julianne, you were. Um, at the, the reporting that I've seen, I wasn't down there either, but the reporting I've seen out of Savannah, out of the convention, uh, makes it pretty clear that Georgia Republicans gave a full-throated embrace to President Trump. And the reporting suggests that that the party pretty much went all in saying we are going to run our campaigns here uh, in parallel with him uh, and uh, we're going to stick uh, to the guy that brought us to this dance. Is that a fair assessment? I think that that's a very fair assessment. You saw with each candidate's speech uh, of the different candidates that were running for the contested party offices of chairman, second vice chairman, um, and some other down ticket races, they all talked about President Trump and their embracing of him and his policies, as well as all of the special speakers, um, anywhere from our national committee man and woman to uh, Senator Perdue to our congressman. It was very, very obvious that our delegation and our elected officials are in full support of the president. Okay, so let's, everybody, I want to bring you all in on this. We know that President Trump's approval ratings, at least as of the last AJC poll, which has now been quite a while, so I want to be careful to say that, uh, he's underwater here. He sits at around 40%. So is, is this the smartest way to proceed for Republicans, I mean? I understand the pressures that uh, sort of force a party to fall in line behind its leader. Um, some of the people that that were kind of, I don't know if they were in the never Trump category, but they criticized him. He sort of prevailed over them. Um, you know, Mark Sanford in South Carolina comes to mind and maybe some others. So that caused even more Republicans to get nervous and think, I, I need to not have a lot of daylight between me and this president. Personally, I view it as very risky for the party long term, but I can understand why why um, it, it is happening now. Um, I think myself, I think it's a little bit of a shame. So, Andra, what I'm hearing Elena say, if she's talking short term, short term is 2020. It, it may be a safe bet to uh, uh, align yourself with Trump in 2020. She thinks beyond that might be more dangerous. Should he win re-election? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple of things, and I, I don't disagree um, with Elena on this point. But I, a couple of other things to point out with this is that, one, despite the fact that he might have uh, nominal um, competition in uh, the presidential primary, President Trump is likely going to be the Republican Party nominee. And so this is not like an open seat contest where people get to pick their faction and then you unite behind the winner. Everybody knows who the nominee is going to be. So it probably doesn't necessarily make sense unless you think an impeachment is imminent to defect. And, and we can see today sort of with Justin Amash that like that hasn't quite gone over very well. <laughs> Amash, the um, Michigan Republican yeah. congressman who said uh, there is impeachable material in the Mueller report. Yeah. So, no, I think the other long term thing to think about is not just sort of, you know, changing demographics in the state, which might actually end up benefiting Democrats. My colleagues have pointed out from a national standpoint, not necessarily yet at the local. I don't think they've actually looked at this at the local level, but my colleagues led by uh, my colleague Pablo Montañez, they've been looking at how people are self-identifying their party identification. And so because a lot of people look at they don't just look at that approved, disapproved number. They look at how it breaks down by party. And we see huge polarization based on sort of the partisan breakdown. So, you know, President Trump has a lot of support among self-identified Republicans and self-identified Democrats clearly don't like him. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, 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 is that that base of people who are identifying as Republican might be shrinking over time. And that's not just because of, you know, changing demographics and people of color being more likely to be Democrats. It's also there are people who are defecting people who at one point did identify as Republican who might be, you know, switching their party identification to something else. And it's that shrinking base that Trump commands that I think one has to be worried about in the long term. So does he keep sort of command of the party, but that party in and of itself becomes smaller and therefore makes it um, much more uh, sort of likely for Democrats to be able to win seats? So he, right. while it appears to be true that Trump will be at the head of the ticket, 
uh, you could imagine varying degrees of commitment to a full-throated embrace of President Trump. I suspect Johnny Isaacson, one of your longest uh, 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 friends, clients, whatever, uh, he's been cautious about President Trump here and there. Well, he has been here or there. But at the end of the day, right, uh, we're talking about the Republican Party convention. These are the grassroots. This is the base. Yeah. These are the most active members of the Republican Party. And I suspect that that uh, President Trump had 110% approval okay. of everybody uh, in Savannah. And that's true. President Obama had that kind of command over a Democratic convention uh, back when he was president of the United States. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me there was a full-throated. I think the other thing that's changed uh, maybe a lot over the last 12 to 18 months is uh, folks are really, particularly even independent voters, uh, are starting to kind of split between Donald Trump, the personality, and Donald Trump's policies and what they're doing for them and their individual lives. And that's what I look at in the data, right? Beyond party identification, when we see this growing number of independents, what I want to do is parse down into those independents and see, do, do they like President Trump as a personality, maybe, maybe not. But then you ask him, do they agree with his policies? Do they agree? Do they like where the economy is? Do they like what he's doing with China? Do they like what he's doing with the military and those kind of things? And that's where Republicans are kind of buoyed maybe for 2020 and optimistic again about the prospects because in those areas he is doing well with many people who self-identify as independent now when you break out the personality. All right, Julianne, I've gone around the whole table. You were there. Uh, what was the atmosphere like? How, how how was the conversation about Trump? How did people respond to the enthusiastic um, uh, speeches on behalf of the president? Trump was the unifying factor at the state convention this year. We had a reorganizational convention where we elect a party chairman mm -hmm. and new party leadership. And so it was a very contentious election. Um, so those types of conventions tend to be full of a lot of vitriol, and we need a unifying factor, and that's what President Trump provided for the convention. And, I mean, I will also state that back in January, the Republican National Committee also did a resolution um, with 100% approval rating uh, of all of the delegates of the RNC um, throwing their support behind the president as well. So, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, interesting that you talk about there was a fractiousness out there. There was great uh, dissent over who should be the next party chair. And that's never going to stop. No, it'll never. It's I, always going to be like that. I have mentioned on this show a couple of times, I don't know, you were too young for this probably, uh, Heath Garrett, the Georgia Republican Party met in Albany back, uh, what was that, 92 or something like that? Actually, it was 88, 88 my, my hometown. Where they had a rump uh, group of conservatives, grassroots conservatives, who were hoping to take over the party. And things got so crazy that the then chairman, John Stuckey, trying to gavel the convention to order, uh, gaveled it so hard that he broke the gavel and it flew up. The head of it flew up into the rafters. It wasn't quite that contentious in Savannah this weekend. No, no, no. we haven't had that since 1988, thank goodness. But there's no question that party conventions, Democrat or Republican, are the most ruckus of our political. And of course, they harken back to a great history, right, where presidents used to be chosen at conventions, and we just don't have that happening anymore. So now the, the real fights are for party chair of the state, and that's where the emotion goes. And People get animated. Um, yeah, let me, Elena, the um, Governor Kemp, of course, spoke. Uh, it's interesting that Nathan Deal, as governor, uh, started skipping these conventions because he was aware of just how much criticism. Yeah, yeah, when he vetoed the religious liberty bill, he realized that he was not going to be well received. But the governor really, uh, he, he, did a, he, he did a couple things. Number one, he seemed to mock the people in Los Angeles, the entertainment industry folks who, and he's done this before, it isn't the first time, but it's worth repeating, uh, who don't want to work here because of uh, HB 481, the new abortion law. Um, and uh, he, he stood strong saying this was the right thing to do. He's not going to let a bunch of Hollywood socialists, that word came up a couple times, uh, tell him how the values of this state. Um, I wonder about that kind of posture. Yeah, it seemed as though the uh, governor's remarks were more in line with the persona that he had identified on the campaign trail rather than um, the tone that he took most of the time during the just concluded 
legislative session, it almost seemed like, okay, the same speechwriter or consultant wrote this speech. It it evoked a lot of the sort of same rhetoric and imagery from the campaign trail. And, and, And I think also it fits the nice trope of having a foil. Um, And so, I mean, when you're going to talk about Hollywood C-listers, especially in a crowd of Republican activists, nobody cares. Um, They're actually going to be like, yeah. I mean, even when I was at church a couple weeks ago, like right after Governor Kemp signed the bill into law. And, you know, there were references made to Alyssa Milana. And in that crowd, like nobody is sympathetic to her. So I think from that standpoint, this was actually very welcoming. And I think the larger question is, how does this resonate outside? How does this resonate with the middle? How does this resonate with people who, you know, weren't going to be at a convention, who, you know, may want to consider who to vote for next year and in 2022? And in particular, how does this resonate? What are the consequences of this type of rhetoric for the film industry? Well, it is worth noting, and I would let you have a chance, Julianne, it is worth noting that, that Governor Kemp was supposed to be heading to Los Angeles, I think, on Wednesday of this week for the annual. Georgia uh, uh, event where they celebrate the film industry, television industry for working in Georgia. And he's had to cancel that trip because he realizes it would be foolish to try to do that now. Your turn, Julianne. Well, first of all, I don't think that the film industry in Georgia is going to be hurt by any of this rhetoric whatsoever because I think that they're going to choose their pocketbook, their finances, and all of the tax breaks that they get in the state of Georgia over some of these different social issue disagreements with regard to Kemp's speech, he knew his audience. I mean, this isn't a speech that he gave out uh, to the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. It wasn't a public speech to a Rotary Convention. This was a speech to the Georgia Republican Party Convention, and they wanted red meat, and they got it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And I think this reiterates, and Brian is giving the speech, whether it's at the Rotary Club or the Chamber of Commerce or the convention, where he's going around saying, hey, I made certain promises when I ran for office, and I'm going to keep those promises, and I don't want anybody to be surprised by that. I think that what caught a little bit of attention was kind of the tone and the tenor, which is a convention tone and tenor. I do think that it's what's interesting in that same week, we also had Stacey Abrams and other Democratic leaders out joining Governor Kemp saying, hey, let's not boycott mm-hmm. uh, the state of Georgia. Let's not punish the workers. Well, and I thought that's a, that's a nice moment of bipartisanship over the last seven to 10 days. I mean, I think as far as 481 goes, if Everyone has an expectation that it will be held up immediately in the courts and not go into effect. Were that not the case and it actually was upheld and we were one of, you know, a handful or a dozen states in the country to not to have that type of restrictions on abortion, I absolutely believe Hollywood would pull out of the state. And I think it's actually really important, like, you know, when the first uh, producer said they weren't going to do business in the state and it was kind of cheap talk because they had never done business in the state. Right. (laughs) right? I mean, I kind of understood Governor Kemp's comments from there. Um, And I think the hedging that some people are doing now. So Ron Howard saying, you know, well, if this bill actually goes into effect, then I won't do anything in the state anymore. Like, And so there's a lot of hedging there Mm -hmm. that I think Governor Kemp wants to call themselves out on. But at this point, I wouldn't use C-list anymore. I wouldn't either. Because these folks aren't C-list and actors even if they anymore. Were, it's like Ron Howard. <laughs> Get serious. Yeah. C-list. <laughs> I, I think what you just said is important. I also think your point is correct. The, 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 the benefits that, that the uh, film companies, television production companies get out of working in Georgia are better than virtually any other state in the country. I get that. And they've invested in infrastructure here now. Um but there is a sense when Andres says this isn't seed listers anymore, there is a sense, Julianne, that there is a growing concern among the people who make these movies here that they don't like the political climate in Georgia. And I think to just simply dismiss it, I'm wondering if dismissing it out of hand is really the right approach and whether mocking them, yes, it was a red meat speech to his base. But I'm not sure that mocking them is the best approach, especially when you already have realized you can't go to L.A. this week because they're angry at you anyhow. Well, these tax breaks are these tax breaks for business industries are Republican issues. These are things that Republicans do. And I don't think this would have ever happened in Georgia under a Democratic administration as Hollywood continues to come in Georgia and uh 
people that work on movie sets continue to come in. If they lean further to the left and Georgia turns over uh, and becomes a blue state eventually and starts voting blue, I think a lot of these, if we get a Democratic administration, a lot of these different tax policies that have brought Hollywood here in the first place and taken them away from California, I think they would eventually disappear. So I think Hollywood would just... The you tax brace that, that they're getting here in Georgia. Haven't we just gotten done saying the Democrats have united with Republicans to say right. we I, want I to keep shooting here? I do disagree just a little bit with Julianne. I think that a lot of what the discussion I hear at the state capitol is never out of Democrats, we don't like any tax breaks. It's we need to make sure that they stand for a specific purpose and actually are effective. And these, I think everyone has unified are effective. And we, we don't like it when we just throw things at the wall and we don't take account of what's actually happened on the ground. Let me ask about another aspect of the convention out there. Uh, Heath, let me start with you on this. A uh, lot of talk about socialists in the Democratic Party, uh, that it's, you know, the Democrats are moving the country towards socialism. I think David Perdue uh, referenced that in, in right. his speech and others. Uh, it, as Democrat, I mean, I get it. There's a st- strong liberal uh, faction of the Democratic Party uh, that's uh, operating at a national level, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez being a perfect example of that. But Heath, are the Democrats in Georgia moving towards socialism? Well, we've always had a history of the Georgia Democrats not being necessarily in lockstep with the national Democrats. One has to start to question post Stacey Abrams campaign, right, whether or not they're starting to move towards the more national. Look, the reason this is not the Republicans labeling Democrats as socialists. The top three out of five national figures in the Democratic Party are self-avowed socialists, right? Bernie Sanders, Anastasia Ocasio-Cortez, and Elizabeth Warren are out there espousing uh, what you can either call socialism or what I call neo-socialism, which is just a new newer version of socialism by different means through legislation, regulation, and litigation, right? They don't want to take over your company. They just want to run your company through legislation, litigation, and regulation. So we as Republicans are obviously uh, taking advantage of that opportunity from a political standpoint and saying, okay, everybody needs to call this question, right? Are you in line and lockstep with these national party figures? And that's been a part of the kind of uh, growth of the Republican Party in the South for a long time. And it's difficult for, it's a difficult conversation for a lot of our Democratic friends to have because uh, for the last few years that's been calming down and now all of a sudden there's this really negative label out there but well, i think it's a fair label it, it, and a good question it, andre Heath does make a point i mean in in the same way that republicans for a number of years here in the state of georgia steered clear of you know social hot button issues like abortion uh and now they're back plunged deeply into it so too democrats here have tried to maintain a somewhat conservative approach to government stacy abrams broke that mold now she didn't go far left but she said there is definitely a democratic viewpoint that i will espouse in this election so again it's not She's not a socialist, right? She's nowhere near a socialist. Okay, so go ahead. Right, and so, I mean, I think it was, you know, easy to say that in part because, yes, I think it is true that Democrats have become more liberal. Republicans have become more conservative over time. So we've seen this ideological sorting, which means that we don't have much of a middle anymore. So I don't want to say that there hasn't been an ideological shift on both sides to to the more extreme um, types of points of view. Stacey Abrams, in terms of her behavior, in terms of her willingness to, you know, work with Republicans while she was in leadership, um, you know, in in the state house, um, there are all kinds of ways her talk about jobs and businesses is actually meant to be a little bit more middle of the road. Um, And I think sort of the moniker of socialism, one, it's working because President Trump put it out there. I assume it's been message tested on the Republican side. And so there are people who, you know, hear that and they automatically go back to the Cold War and they start thinking of sort of, you know, Soviet, um, you know, Soviet sort of communism types of things. And so like there are all these reasons why that term is being used. I would argue, though, that in terms of sort of, you know, where the Democratic Party is, it's certainly more liberal. Um, We certainly have people who want to don the progressive mantle. But there's also this ideological fight about whether or not the people who you mentioned who are not the leaders of the party, but who I just happen to have really high pro 
profiles actually speak for the majority of people within sort of the Democratic coalition. And they don't. And right. I mean, and, you know, and people are you know reminding that Twitter is not a representative sample yeah. of the not United States. Just because you can do this in like the Bronx doesn't mean that you could come down That's, here to Georgia and do the same yeah, thing. Elena. I mean, and, and so and I'd say that Georgia's Democrats are still very much there. They're not that far left. So, Lena, you're going to have to fight this in the trenches and running for re-election as a Democrat. How do Democrats in Georgia... In my gerrymander since, districts, well, I could your, definitely be AOC. Yeah. It'd be no problem. Okay, let's just say all of you out there. <laughs> I mean, Democrats are going to have to fight off this label. It's true. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if y'all talked about it on the show. I think maybe you did when Lucy McBath returned a check from... Um, Ilhan Omar. Omar, Yeah. So, you know, there is there is, of course, in in parts of the country and certain types of districts, they they don't want to make it super easy for their opponents to say, oh, here's another AOC or she's exactly like Ilhan Omar, because they they know that 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 might not play well in that particular race. And so I do think every elected official, that's something we're mindful of. I, you you get the last word. I got to get to a break. There Julianne. is a reason why Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is the most sought after endorsement of all of the presidential candidates. She has big pull within the Democratic Party, and there is a reason that Bernie Sanders, who is a self avowed Democratic Socialist, which is really an oxymoron, um, he there is a reason that he pulled in the largest amount of small dollar donations within the first seven days of announcing his candidacy. Well, actually, Biden eclipsed him after he announced his campaign. But up until that up point, until then. yes. But Biden's certainly not a... You Biden call him is a definitely left, but not, but he's, but he's trying to say he's the most progressive in the race, but yeah. he right. he's not. All right, I got to do this. I got to get to a break. There are a couple more things I'd love to unpack uh, that took place in Savannah over the weekend. Uh, we'll get to that after this message. You're listening to Political Rewind. Hey, this is David Green, host of Morning Edition. I'm here to talk with you about that poking feeling, the one that keeps reminding you to support public radio. You can support the programs you love by donating your used vehicle. That old car or truck could be worth hundreds of dollars to this station. All you have to do is call, and you might even receive a tax deduction. Go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR and thanks. Thousands of migrants cross the southern border every day. Some try to evade border patrol. They're not equipped for the walk. They don't bring enough water. And for some reason, they get hurt or they get sick. They're going to be left behind. Operation Identification helps to repatriate the remains of those who don't make it. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Uh, Julianne Thompson, uh, you did have a fight for a party chair. I will be perfectly candid with you. I think listeners to our show, whether it's the Democratic convention or the Republican <laughs> state convention, don't really have a big uh, uh, you know, stake in who the party chairman is. Of course. So David Schaefer won, former member of the state Senate, one of the leaders, uh, thought it was likely that he was going to be a constitutional officer, lieutenant governor. That didn't work out for him. I, but here's why it's important, uh, because here's what he said in, uh, and I do, frankly don't know if he said this right before the, the election or it was something he said afterwards. The quote is, I believe our Republican Party is in trouble. In the last election, we found ourselves on the defensive for the first time in a decade. We need to go back on the offensive. Do you think that one of the reasons he got elected is your fellow Republicans believe that's true? Well, I do believe that people think that that's true, but I believe he was uh, elected for a variety of reasons. And let me state that it was not even close. There were yeah. four candidates, David Schaefer, won on the first ballot and he won by 60% of the vote. So this was a very grassroots driven convention. Um, It was very easy to see just in the convention hall how much support that David Schaefer had among the delegation. Okay, but then what about that quote? I believe the Republican Party is in trouble. We've got to mobilize and energize grassroots. I mean, that is certainly, we certainly know that in 2018, Democrats did a far better job of canvassing, especially in metro Atlanta communities. They absolutely did. We can no longer run a rural-centric campaign in the state of Georgia and expect to win another statewide seat. We've got to get back to metro Atlanta as well. I'm not saying neglect rural Georgia, but we also have to get back to metro Atlanta. We have to work on swing voters. We have to work on those suburban moms and get back at least a certain percentage of them. And I think that Schaefer won for several different reasons. He ran 
he won because he understands we don't need to constantly be on the defensive, that we need to be more proactive in our messaging instead of waiting and being reactive. And I think that he understands that, um, you know, I, I think that John Watson was the right chairman for the right time. He got us out of a lot of political debt. However, he was not the most grassroots-driven and relationship-driven chairman, and David Schaefer has those relationships. Well, and it's, it's rare that I get to compliment Stacey Abrams on the show, but I do want to compliment her, and I think this it did help David Schaefer's candidacy. Uh, she outworked us, but that started back in 2012, 2013. She worked on this grassroots effort on behalf of the Democratic Party when other people in the Democratic establishment did not want to fund what she was doing. And there's no question that going door to door at the street level, we as Republicans just didn't mobilize and energize in a way and, and did not see that coming. Right. And we and I think that's what David was articulating is we've got to be able to match that apartment complex by apartment complex, door to door. But are Republicans suited to that kind of uh, uh, work, Andra? I think of that as Democrat. I think of Democrats as being better at doing that kind of grassroots work. And that may be completely incorrect. Well, um, so one of the things that I'll say was, um, you know, I did my doctoral dissertation on minority voter turnout, but I was trained by Don Greens at Columbia University, who did a lot of the work to show that canvassing was, in fact, the best way to increase voter right. turnout. And when I first started studying this, we were doing it in nonpartisan um, kinds of ways. You know, when I started to do it, it was somewhat partisan. I guess it was nonpartisan, even though there was a partisan undercurrent to it. Um, but one of the things that Don Green and Alan Gerber, all of those sort of fathers of this field, have pointed out was they've replicated this stuff in lots of different contexts. So it didn't matter sort of what the racial or demographic makeup was. It didn't matter what the partisanship was. It's done in Democratic, Republican, and nonpartisan contexts. If you do the experiment right, you get the same result. So it isn't a partisan. That, okay, right. thank you. So, I, I, that, thank you for correcting that. That misimpression that I had. Um, Elena, well, I think that, yeah, the difference to a certain extent, actually, I'd love to hear Andre's um, viewpoint on this, is that Democrats tend to have more people who are, who tend to be overall lower propensity voters, which gives more opportunity for sometimes um, some of that targeting um, to maybe work at a higher level. But I completely agree that, you so, know. Uh, if, if we were going to think about this, I don't want to just because there's a funny S-curve kind of thing going on there in terms of sort of like where you like in terms of how much I could shift your how much I could shift your uh, likelihood of turning out to vote. By the time we end up reporting it, you know, we usually sort of are promoting an, an average thing over time, you know, so we're not necessarily. Worried about, so I see where you're going with that. But. It's too complicated to explain on air. All right. I don't want to get into too complicated. But I'll just say, as on the Republican side, we just abandoned this field for yes. a couple of election yeah. cycles because yeah. we thought we were going to win no yeah. matter what. Yeah. And so we weren't even on the field last cycle, in my opinion. And I think we got to correct that. And so, and I think that that's the most important takeaway from this. And so, one of the things that I think is really good about what David Schaefer is proposing is he's proposing to make sure that you do the shoe leather work, the right. hard work. Now, the question becomes if you do the shoe leather work and you find out that those voters aren't <laughs> they there. Don't vote yeah. Then there has there have to be certain concessions right. and certain That's adjustments what I was made. Yeah. And, so, here, and here is where the Democrats did a better job better than the Republicans did. They understand that politics is a relationship-driven thing. It's not just about benchmarks and metrics. And when it comes to some of these campaigns, it's how many doors did you knock on? How many phone calls did you make? And that's it. They yeah. think that their job is done. The fact of the matter is Democrats have formed relationships with people. And when you form personal relationships and you have people with the kind of personalities doing the canvassing that can form relationships and give people ownership in a campaign and do that type of messaging throughout your campaign, you get people that want to turn out to vote. Or the issue is, and, and, and there's still some debate on it, I don't research here anymore, is that whether, how much the message matters. There's a lot of stuff I could tell you, and I could still increase your likelihood to turn out to vote. If you're wired to not vote for a particular candidate, then, you know, then that becomes the problem. So I think it becomes, and I just think this is an open question, who do voters, like once you mobilize them, want to support right. in an election? Let me, uh, one last thing about the Republican convention. Uh, there was no mention, in fact, I'm going to go to the Democrat on this, and then Heath and Julianne can respond. Uh, there was no mention at this convention about, uh, about uh, Jim Beck, just been indicted on 38 felony counts, and the AJC dug into the uh, indictments. They went over a tooth and comb and found that apparently, allegedly, 
uh, Beck funded a good portion of his campaign with funds that he fraudulently <laughs> obtained. That's the allegation. Yeah. There was no mention of him, no censure of him of any sort. And Ralston, too, got a pass despite the... And, in fact, according to the reporting by Greg Bluestein, there was a a measure that would have complimented George House Republicans for having changed the leave that attorneys are allowed to take. Uh, yeah, but that's if, kind of a backhand slap at Ralston a little bit. But I'm not. I'm certainly not surprised that they wouldn't um, take on Ralston. I mean, t- to be honest, I can't really see the upside. What about of Beck passing something like that? Beck, I think, is. A different story, I think, because he probably had already voluntarily asked to suspend or whatever exactly it was. Maybe they thought that sort of was matter closed for right now because the criminal justice system needs to do its work. But it is really fascinating to me just as an avid consumer of Georgia politics. Number one, I mean, a lot of this was well known before he was elected and the lack of penetration, you know, some of it's just the our media here mm-hmm. in Georgia. You know, there are tons and tons of very knowledgeable voters who really do not consume Georgia media, number one. Um, number two, just having so many constitutional races on the ballot, unless you're really dug in, you you know, there just weren't that many headlines about it. But in retrospect, it's just so shocking to me. This was absolutely well known. And you've got all of these people on the company he defrauded writing him checks. It's just unbelievable. Or I'm sorry. Allegedly defrauded. Yeah, allegedly. I think uh, definitely like But I knew as I was the campaign chair for, um, you know, sort of the titular campaign chair for Cindy Zeldin, who was running for the Democratic nomination and would have been an excellent candidate. You know, I followed that race closely enough to know that all this stuff was going on. Right. There's absolutely no doubt about the fact that the 38 uh, count indictment is disturbing and uh, gives great cause for concern. The governor came out and asked for his resignation. I think that the governor speaks for the party in that respect. However, the, this was an indictment. He's been indicted. He hasn't been convicted. And as such, I don't think it would have been appropriate for the body of the Georgia Republican Party to address an ongoing uh, court case at our state convention. I, I, I want to change the subject, but I have to ask you one last question about the convention, because this is a passion of yours. Was there conversation, Julianne Thompson, about Republicans needing to recruit more women, something you have been passionate about? Melita Easters just the other day put out another news release saying she's got another like dozen women running in Democratic races as a result of 481. Did there was there was it is do they mean it? And if they talked about it at your convention? Well, absolutely, they mean it. I certainly mean it, and I'm continuing to do that and continuing to work and train with women all over the state of Georgia. Um, also, there there was one of the things that my husband talked about was the need for uh, inclusion with regard to, to various communities, and he talked about the success of the Chinese-American Republicans in the state of Georgia, the fact that they started out with a small group of just a couple of hundred members and grew to uh, 6,500 very active members that formed an organization called Chinese Americans for Trump. And they are booming. They are on fire and they are doing so much for the Republican Party in the state of Georgia. So I think that sort of outreach and inclusion is going right. on, but they do need to do a better job. We with will watch how that unfolds. Uh, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. Let's turn our attention from what happened in Savannah this weekend and move on to a number of other issues. Uh, we'll do that right after we pause. On the next Fresh Air, John Waters. His new book is Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. At age 73, he has plenty of ideas about what older people should or shouldn't do. The worst thing is ever to get a convertible because, believe me, old age and windswept do not go hand in hand. It's really a bad look. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. My name is Daimundus Papadopoulos. I am the medical director at Metroderm. Metroderm is a dermatology slash dermatologic surgical practice in Atlanta with 18 providers. I wanted to participate in underwriting for public radio. The integrity of what I was listening to made me feel like I wanted to be part of that message and that represented us and it was something I felt very positive about doing. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. 
We're back on uh, Political Rewind. Elena Parent is with us today. Heath Garrett, Dr. Andre Gillespie, and Julianne Thompson at the table. Um, let me ask you a little off topic here, uh, Elena Parent. There was an interesting item about Teresa Tomlinson, now a Democratic candidate, of course, for U.S. Senate. The uh, Roanoke newspaper, the major, the Roanoke News, did a shout out to her. They said, We don't endorse, this was an editorial, said, We don't, and they're in Virginia. We don't endorse candidates anymore. We think voters should make up their own minds, which is just the excuse newspapers gives for not wanting to anger some of their readers. But nevertheless, they gave her a huge shout out for the fact that she was one of the sweet Briar alums who came in and helped save that college when it was about to close. That's kind of up. You know that neck of the woods up there? Well, yeah, she does too. We're I both do. from Virginia. Yeah. So mm-hmm. certainly. That is interesting. I, I had I had missed that, but yeah. I, I'm not surprised. Well, that... I'm surprised you missed it because Teresa certainly has been putting it out there into the world no, she, you <laughs> for know, good I'm, reason. I'm very excited about uh, Teresa's candidacy, and it'll be interesting to watch that election unfold. Yeah, I mean, well, so for context, Sweetbriar College is a women's college um, that's about an hour west of, of, of Richmond um, and, uh, you know, really renowned. And then all of a sudden they surprisingly announced that they were going to close. And the alumni were like, we didn't know that there was something wrong with the final finances and things. And so I did not realize Teresa's role in this, you know, until I read this article by Greg Bluestein in the AJC. But she was apparently one of the leading alumni who actually helped lead the charge and the court battle actually to um, keep the school open so that they could, in fact, reorganize. Yeah, I, it was just a, it came out of nowhere. And Teresa is proudly sending out, you know, uh, links to that editorial. But well, the reason I... Bring... Hey, you got to fundraise in every, of course um, you... every oh, no, circle no, no, no. that you I, can get into. I, that is excellent. I'm in no way being critical. I get that. But here's why I bring it up in the first place. Where are the other Democrats, Elena? I mean, is, is top, it, isn't it past time for anybody else who may want to make this race to do it already? Well, I, I think some folks are sort of, you know, agitating behind the scenes. How so much we'll longer can see... you agitate? Well, I don't know. The election's still got some time in, in front of it. Yeah, well, it's not the presidential race. So in that respect, I, you know, I think that there probably is still some time on the calendar here. Now, by coming out as early as she did and by being the strongest candidate in the Democratic field, uh, Thompson has put herself in a really strong position to be able to, you know, get the best uh, to get the best consultants to start raising money to do all of those things that could actually, in fact, shut the field out. And so, you know, I, I mean, I'm not surprised by her position. I would say that, you know, I wouldn't wait until this time, you know, well, I would say, you know, early 2020 okay. to announce a yeah, bid. I but imagine some but I mean, you, you probably still have a little bit of time. I, yeah. I, uh, Heath, I could never make a living well, as a political consultant as you've been able to do. But if I were if I were consulting for somebody who was thinking about getting in the race, I'd say, we got to move. Teresa Tomlinson came out early, as Andre just pointed out. She's she's not only the strong, she's the only candidate on the Democratic side. I don't think you can afford to wait. I, I think, Teresa, the answer to your question is she's showing her strength yeah. by the fact that nobody else is coming out yet. However, there are a couple of lanes in the Democratic primary that don't have to be out today, but the cycle is getting short, longer and longer. It really started the day after the last election. Uh, I'm pleased that the Democrats have waited this long to get started. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, but, but I do think that somebody has to be in by Labor Day in order to raise the money. Money to organize and do okay, you get that, that's still a few. Okay, and so you know, you've got like a few other months. Other candidates, Teresa, that we discussed, like like Stacey Abrams, not quite that lengthy. She's spent a lot of time, a long period of time, doing a lot of groundwork. Yeah. For and this if race. someone else is going to get in, they shouldn't get in until after the June thirtieth disclosure. Otherwise, yeah. they're Good going point. to show that they haven't raised the money. Right. Well, you know Good that point. was the uh, that was what people said when Karen Handel got in right before the end of a disclosure period, and it turned out she raised pretty good amount of money. It turned out not to be much of a problem at all, right? Yeah, but the, that's the difference between a congressional race and a, oh, and a okay. U.S. Senate race. Makes it's sense. A lot Thank bigger. you. Okay, good, good. Um, I want to move to a couple of interesting, I think, national uh, stories. First of all, Bernie Sanders was in Augusta on Saturday. Cornell West was here to introduce him. Andre, you're nodding. Uh, it's interesting. West has been a Sanders guy. Um, the the reporting on this, although his speech out there, Robert Jimison went out there and covered him for us. Uh, and although his speech didn't directly uh, address the question of why African-Americans should support him, the fact that Cornell West introduced him, it's clear that he want, he's got to win some African-American support here. 
it strikes me that's going to be it, it's going to be interesting to see how that happens in Georgia. I think unless he is the far front runner in the race, it's still going to be tough. And so if we keep in mind that in 2016, Sanders got about 28 percent of the overall vote. Um, and a lot of that was because older African-Americans, when we presume older Af- older African-Americans of this group, um, that we don't actually, um, you know, Edison Matofsky doesn't usually break that down for us. But we yeah. just assume it's the older set. Um didn't warm to the message. So, you know, they didn't understand what democratic socialism was and so would have been turned off by it, you know, for the same reasons that I think Republicans want to try to deploy this yeah. against Democrats this particular cycle. I think the challenge that Sanders is is having this time around is one, the field is so big. Um, he's not the front runner. Um, and so if we think about who the front runner is and how well Joe Biden is doing amongst African-Americans nationally and there are two African-American yeah. uh, leading African-American candidates in the race, that also sort of leads to the fact that, you know, Sanders has a lot of competition and he even has competition on his left flank because there are other people like Elizabeth Warren who are also trying to make the same pitch yeah. and reach out to the same. Let, let's listen to just a, a, one of the remarks that uh, Sanders made out there in Augusta and then we'll uh, open it up for the panel. In America today, you have cowardly governors in some place close to your home who think the only way they can win elections is by suppressing the vote. And I say to those governors in Georgia and every place else in this country, if you don't have the guts to participate in free, fair, and open elections, get the hell out of politics and get another job. Well, that sounds like Stacey Abrams' lane. I love the fact that we now talk about lanes in uh, political campaigns in a way that we never used to use. What do we all think of uh, Sanders using that uh, uh, message? Well, I mean, voter suppression is certainly a topic um, that does is very interesting to a large segment. Is of it? The, I is think it? So. Mm-hmm. Is it? That's my question. I mean, and, and by large, I don't necessarily mean fifty percent, but I would say forty. Maybe more. What well, and and look, I mean, I talk about this almost every Monday. We, you know, there. I think the Wall Street Journal did a great article about ten days ago. One of the greatest myths in modern American politics is that there was voter suppression or fraud in the state of Georgia. Stacey Abrams is making a living right now, going to New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington D.C. and telling people that somehow this election was stolen from her. When the largest percentage of non-voters in the last election cycle were poor rural white voters, right? So, if there's anybody being suppressed, it wasn't the most likely a Stacey. Oh. Okay. Voter. I just think we need to get off that narrative. And, and anyway, Bernie Sanders coming to Georgia does remind me about socialism. All right, but I'm not trying Democratic to... Democratic re- socialism, I'm, not socialism. I'm not There's trying to no relitigate whether suppression took place <laughs> yes, or not, but whether it's an issue that resonates much, Andra. Well, I think other I, that is falling flat for me. Yeah. Um, and, so, and I will acknowledge that this was the, the, the first time that I heard it. I, I just think the way that Sanders is talking about it is kind of weird. So, you know, there are people who are doing work. And so there are certain things that are really hard to detect, whether or not you can detect discriminatory effects, whether or not certain things were intended to be done to suppress the vote, I think is an entirely different story. And the fact that Brian Kemp was secretary of state um, and according to many Democrats, or at least how it was perceived, you know, was overseeing the election in his own favor, um, you know, is something that optically he's going to have a hard time with. And I think Democrats are going to continue to try to play yeah. with that. Um, I think Kamala Harris has said it better in other sorts of instances where you can just talk about this. But to talk about being cowardly, like it's not a question of being cowardly so much. I think the framing of the election from the optic standpoint is you are putting the thumb on your own yeah. election and that there's something wrong well, with sure. that. And that's yeah. what and that was what was rubbing people. Well, the yeah, yeah. There's gerrymandering and all these other things that all add up to a huge column of things that 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 undermine. You Sh- know, says your the woman who just said that the gerrymandering <laughs> makes her Democratic seat safe. Right. Well, <laughs> right. But yeah, I mean, it has to be acknowledged. It goes both ways on that. One. <laughs> okay, right, the bottom line in 2018. <laughs> in the race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams is on one hand, she was saying voter suppression. On the other hand, in her last two mail pieces, at the bottom of the mail piece, it said, it's never, there's never been an easier time to vote in the state of Georgia. It's never been easier to vote in the state of Georgia. Yeah. So you can't have it both ways. All right. Let, let me, I, I, I don't mean to cut the conversation. There are a couple other things I'd love to get to. Uh, one of them is uh, Pete Buttigieg being on Fox News last night with Chris Wallace. He really uh, seemed to strike a chord. His appearance on Fox News last night 
overshadow Joe Biden's official entry into the race from my point of view. Let's listen when he talked about Fox News on Fox News. Especially when you see what goes on with some of the opinion hosts on this network. I mean, when you got Tucker Carlson saying that immigrants make America dirty, when you've got uh, Laura Ingram comparing detention centers with children in cages to summer camps, summer camps, then there is a reason why anybody has to swallow hard and think twice before participating in this media ecosystem. But I also believe that even though some of those hosts are not always there in good faith, I think a lot of people tune into this network uh, who do it in good faith. And, and there are a lot of Americans who my party can't blame if they are ignoring our message because they will never hear it if we don't go on and talk about it. And so it's why, whether it's going into uh, the viewership of Fox News or whether geographically it's going into places uh, where Democrats haven't been seen much, I think we've got to find people where they are, not change our values, but update our vocabulary so that we're truly connecting with Americans from coast to coast. Heath, we know that there are a number of Democrats, Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, most notably, uh, refusing to do a Fox News uh, show because they feel that network is uh, so biased against Democrats. Uh, Buttigieg got a standing ovation, cheering. uh, But I noticed on Fox and Friends this morning, they completely trashed his appearance last night. Right. But that's part that's part of, you know, going on the news. I think uh, Buttigieg deserves a lot of credit for having done that. Right. It was a smart political move for somebody who's not in first place. Uh, in that primary. I think he continues to impress those of us who are just kind of professional observers of this with his frankness, uh, with his political courage, with his willingness to break the mold in a number of ways. Uh, I think that it's smart for Republicans to go on CNN and on MSNBC. And I think that it's important for uh, Democrats to do that. And so I think wholesale just saying you're not going to be on these other channels is not the right thing for democracy in our republic. You know, we don't know a lot. There are a lot of things we don't know about where he stands on many, many issues. But boy, as a communicator, this guy is outstanding. Yeah, I mean, I watched um, last night most of it, and then I started talking to my dad toward the end of it. But yeah, I mean, he's, you know, super articulate. I think he relates really well. I still think America is not ready for a president born in 1982, just yet. I think we're probably about five (laughs) or ten years away from that. Um, But I think he's super impressive, and I think it is understandable why he is in the position that he's in. And I I agree with Heath. I think think it's okay to say I'm not going to go on certain shows that air between 8 and 11 o'clock on cable news um, because it's all opinion um, on in some instances and there's not a whole lot of substance there. But I think it's wrong to say that I'm just going to write off entire swaths of, of the population, even yep. though it's understandable why you'd be more likely to do that in a primary than in a general. We've got a, just a few seconds. Julianne, uh, President Trump already tweeted this morning that he was offended that uh, Fox had given uh, Buttigieg this uh, forum last night. Uh, and Britt Hume, who has become very, I knew Britt back in his ABC reporting days when he didn't express his opinion. He's clearly very conservative now, but he tweeted back, it's our job, Mr. President, to expose the candidates. It is their job. And it's the job of all the networks to allow equal time to both sides. And um, I I, I just think that that that's that's a ridiculous tweet. All right. We are completely out of time. For I wish we had another half. This is a panel today that if we could only ask Terry Gross, whose show is so wonderful, I know, to give us the next half hour, I'd love to have you all stay. We can't uh, do that. Elena Parent, Heath Garrett, Julianne Thompson, Andrew Gillespie, thanks for a really wonderful show. Finally, we're not going to get a chance to play his soundbite, but we had to give a shout out. You've been hearing this story all day. Robert F. Smith. In his graduation speech at Morehouse, it kind of makes me uh, tear up a little, saying he will for, he will pay the loans of every graduate of that class. But he said something more important. He said, alums, I'm doing it this time. Next time, it's up to you for every class. And those of you who graduated uh, this weekend, you need to pay it forward as well. What a remarkable thing to do. And apparently, a really remarkable individual, Robert F. Smith, Thank you for what you've done for all of us, in a way. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you back with Political Rewind tomorrow at 2.